0: We're going to read two passages tonight. We're going to start with 1 Samuel chapter 1, verses 1 to 18, and then we're going to have a second reading. First book of Samuel, 1 Samuel 1, from verse 1. Now there was a certain man of Ramathame Zophim, of the mountains of Ephraim, and his name was Elkanah the son of Jeroham, the son of Elihu, the son of Tohu, the son of Zaph, and Ephraimite. And he had two wives. The name of one was Hannah, and the name of the other was Penina. Penina had children, but Hannah had no children. This man went up from his city yearly to worship and sacrifice to the Lord of hosts in Shiloh. Also, the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, the priests of the Lord, were there. And whenever the time came for Elkanah to make an offering, he would give portions to Penina, his wife, and to all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah, he would give a double portion, for he loved Hannah, although the Lord had closed her womb. And her rival also provoked her severely to make her miserable, because the Lord had closed her womb. So it was year by year when she went up to the house of the Lord that she provoked her. Therefore she wept and did not eat. Then Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Hannah, why do you weep? Why do you not eat? And why is your heart grieved? Am I not better to you than ten sons? So Hannah arose after they had finished eating and drinking in Shiloh. Now Eli, the priest, was sitting on the seat by the doorpost of the tabernacle of the Lord. And she was in bitterness of soul and prayed to the Lord and wept in anguish. Then she made a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your maidservant and remember me and not forget your maidservant, but will give your maidservant a male child, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life, and no razor shall come upon his head. And it happened as she continued praying before the Lord that Eli watched her mouth. Now Hannah spoke in her heart. Only her lips moved, but her voice was not heard. Therefore Eli thought she was drunk. So Eli said to her, how long will you be drunk? Put your wine away from you. But Hannah answered and said, no, my Lord, I'm a woman of sorrowful spirit. I have drunk neither wine nor intoxicating drink, but have poured out my soul before the Lord. Do not consider your maid servant a wicked woman for out of the abundance of my complaints and grief, I have spoken until now. Then Eli answered and said, go in peace. And the God of Israel grant your petition which you have asked of him. And she said, Let your maidservant find favour in your sight. So the woman went her way and ate, and her face was no longer sad. Turn to Psalm 13 with me, and with that ringing in your ears, what we've just read, we'll read the words of Psalm 13. Psalm 13, entitled, Trust in the Salvation of the Lord, to the Chief Musician, a Psalm of David. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long shall I take counsel in my soul, having sorrow in my heart daily? How long will my enemy be exalted over me? Consider and hear me, O Lord my God. Enlighten my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. Lest my enemy say I have prevailed against him. Lest those who trouble me rejoice when I am moved. But I have trusted in your mercy. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord, because he has dealt bountifully with me. The connection between the two readings will hopefully come become more clear than maybe it already is as we go through. So despite Phil breaking our pattern and leaving Psalm 12 behind, I've gone on to Psalm 13. I'm going to leave Phil to decide if he's going to go back to 12 or if it'll be one for the future in future years. So Psalm 13. Um, the title, if you would like one or if it's helpful to you um, for this evening, is Trouble always trouble. By way of introduction, picture this fictitious, I highlight this is fictitious, highlight this fictitious scene with me, sorry, picture this fictitious scene. A young Prince William and a young Prince Harry are having somewhat of a disagreement in the palace. Harry gets so cross that he throws the golden candlestick from the palace at his older brother, slicing his eyebrow open. Charles, now King Charles, Charles, sees the blood dripping and knows that this is going to take weeks to heal. So he says to his PR person, cancel all of the engagements for William over the next two weeks. There is no way we can let this get out. We have a reputation to protect. That is a fictitious picture. (laughs) Now, Dale Ralph Davis, didn't take long to quote him, Dale Ralph Davis remarks in his book about how glad we should be that the divine editor of the Bible and of the Psalms left such a thing as Psalm 13 in and didn't think it fit to be left out and left it in for us. We should be grateful and pleased that the editor's response was not to say, whoa, better not let let on that there might be bleak despair for the believer, that the believer's experience may be bleak how grateful we should be that we have this then to turn to and to learn from and listen to what our lord would say to us uh, in it so as we looked uh, at the beginning before the first verse it is another psalm of david it is one of the lament psalms if you think way back to um i think it's two years ago we started looking at the psalms um, we looked at the, how the psalms can be broken up into different uh, categories this is one of the lament psalms And in true David Hercock style, I wonder if you noticed the seemingly strange line in the psalm as I read it. The part that just seems to make no sense. Well, back to that later. So I have three points. Hopefully they're phrased uh, conveniently enough for you to uh, make notes or to remember them. The first point is the weariness of faith. The weariness of faith. Remember the old saying, time flies when you're having fun? Well, it can often be the complete opposite when your days are spent in the, so to speak, minor key. Four times in only two verses we hear David saying, how long, how long, how long, how long? long?" Now this is not a request for information. This is not a question that David actually wants or expects an answer to. It's a cry of despair, of struggling to cope, a plea for help, a plea for comfort, and a plea for deliverance. We don't know exactly what David's situation is here. Much like many other of David's Psalms, we don't know exactly where to place it. could be in a similar place to where Psalm 11 uh, was in his life. But whatever the circumstance is, David feels like he's been forgotten by God. He feels like he's been forsaken. Now, being isolated from human relationships can be tough enough, can't it? Because we are created as relational beings. So we feel that if it's removed for any reason, that's hard. Well, feeling isolated from God as David was feeling here. Now, that's a different matter altogether, isn't it? feeling like your God has turned his face from you. That's how David feels. We looked in a previous psalm at how one may be tempted to criticise David's faith, to criticise him for being weak, to criticise him for having this struggle. But actually, let's remember what David's doing here, because yes, he's struggling, but he goes to God. He knows where to look for his help. That's really important to repeat that from the previous psalm where we learnt that. There's a little bit more on that later. (coughs) Excuse me. So David is distressed on three counts, uh, we learn, in those first um, two verses. Trouble with God, trouble with self, and trouble with enemies. Again, that appears to be his current circumstance. This is all still under the heading, the weariness of faith. So he's under trouble, or he feels trouble with God, trouble with self. And trouble with enemies perhaps the hardest of these troubles was the feeling of god's absence the feeling of being abandoned by god i bet we've all felt like that at times haven't we if we're honest felt like god should surely have intervened by now in my situation of despair if he was really merciful and people say the bible isn't relevant to us anymore right eh? look at what we're reading here we experienced this the same as david experienced it then What does, by way of a point of application as we go through, what does this highlight to us immediately? Well, it highlights to us that our perceptions might not always be accurate. What David feels to be the case is not actually the case at all. His second uh, distress then is having to seek counsel in his own soul. How long shall I take counsel in my soul? At the beginning of verse 2. So in his innermost being, there is turmoil of thought just in himself. Philip Eveson uh, reminds us about this verse. He reminds us that introspection can often make a present sorrow even worse. David's third trouble then is that he once again feels like the unrighteous, his enemies, are prevailing. And that God's glory and honour are essentially being tarnished. That's David's concern as well. He wants God to be glorified. And he recognises that if he goes down, people will see God's name as going down. So he's um, weary in his faith on three different counts. Secondly, then, the instinct of faith. The instinct of faith. This is coming on to verses 3 and 4. Essentially, this psalm is split into three parts two verses. Verses 3 and 4. So here now... (coughs) 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 Sorry. Here now, we come back to the question. Did you notice the weird line that doesn't seem to fit? The two verses, David is there saying, how long, Lord? How long? Why is this still happening to me? And then at the beginning of verse three. Ah, consider and hear me, O Lord, my God, enlighten my eyes. So you feel like God isn't paying you any attention. You feel like God doesn't care about you. You feel like God has abandoned you. Logically, what do you do? Well, clearly you go back then to that God and you pray to that very same God regardless. Dale Ralph says that this is lousy logic but excellent faith. Lousy logic but excellent faith. So David cried out. He didn't keep it to himself. He's he's seeking counsel in his own soul and now he cries out. He didn't keep it in and that's an important lesson for those of us who are tempted to bottle things up. He cried out. <laughs> I didn't write this down but I listened to a sermon by Alistair Begg actually which I would recommend to all of you on Psalm 13 and he says surely we all have those moments where you have to go out into the garden and just say "Ah!" and that's what he was likening to what David is doing here the need sometimes to simply cry out and to release so despite David bemoaning God's lack of care or his lack of intervention so far he still goes to God with his needs in simple human terms, then, logically, human, in human terms, there's no reason to do this because he doesn't feel like God's there for him. But faith reacts regardless. Just two, two things that might help us understand that point a little bit better, or a little bit more fully. Think about what we teach children about the sun. I'm sure we've all had these conversations with children or grandchildren, or maybe we've taught it ourselves. The sun is always up there, right? The sun never fails to rise every single morning. Can we always see it? No. Sometimes it's obscured from our view, obscured by cloud or obscured by bad weather, but eventually the day comes when we see it again and we feel its benefit. Our lack of seeing the sun doesn't mean that it's not there. The second point to help um, illustrate that a little bit, I'm going to read an extract from a book to you about uh, an anecdote from Charles Spurgeon about the woman in his first congregation at Water Beach who he called Mrs. Much Afraid. I don't know if you've ever heard this. Mrs. Much Afraid. She was always doubting and fearful over her spiritual condition, though she had been a believer for 50 years and showed all the fruit of a genuine faith. She was faithful in worship, helpful to neighbours, willing to speak to the unconverted. One day they were talking and she declared that she had no hope no faith, and feared she was a hypocrite. So Spurgeon told her to quit coming to the chapel because we don't want hypocrites here. (laughs) He asked her why she came. She replied, I I come because I can't stay away. I love the people of God. I love the house of God, and I love to worship God. Spurgeon assured her that she was an odd sort of hypocrite. As the conversation moved on, he he asked if she had no hope at all. No, she said. So Spurgeon pulled out his wallet and said, Now, I've got five pounds here. It's all the money I have. But I will give you that five pounds for your hope if you will sell it. She looked at him, evidently puzzled, and then exclaimed, Why, I, sh- I, sh- I would not sell it for a thousand worlds. And Spurgeon's editorial comment was this. She had just told me she had no hope of salvation, yet she wouldn't sell it for a thousand worlds. In short, her instincts assumed what her words denied. It's just a little uh, picture, hopefully, to highlight that sometimes, um, uh, sometimes what appears to be the case might not actually be the case. And it's when David is in that metaphorical pit that you see this clear evidence of his faith. It's like an automatic uncontrollable response within David... In the two verses of despair, if you stop the psalm there, you would think he's lost his faith. He has no faith. He's he's, he's done. And then you come on to these verses 3 and 4 where clearly he remembers, despite his circumstance, that the sun does rise, i.e. God is there watching over. It's like the uncontrollable when you sit in a doctor's surgery with your your legs crossed and he hits your knee and your foot flies out. It's that uncontrollable uh, instinct to remember our faith and to pray to our Lord what does David cry out for under this instinct of faith well he asks for his eyes to be enlightened now this may be a request for understanding but most seem to agree that it is David asking for fresh energy for fresh stamina for reviving he wants the sparkle of life back in his eye once again One of the reasons I read the first part of 1 Samuel there, think about Hannah's face changing uh, in verse 18. After being with Eli, after being assured uh, following her prayer, her face was changed, much like David is asking for his face again to light up and to have that sparkle. It's very interesting then, I believe, and, and maybe you clocked it. It's very interesting to note that David follows up with three arguments or reasons to support his wish. Now, some might say that that's David trying to surely bend God's arm and to convince him. Well, actually, we should see this as evidence for why prayer is a thinking exercise. Um, Again, Dale Ralph Davis says, The fact that David uses reasons in his petitions shows us that prayer should be logical and rational. Think back a few weeks to when Phil did his seven P's. I won't test you on whether or not you remember all of the seven P's, but one of them was promises. And Phil was reminding us that we need to take God's word back to him, take God's promises back to him. And this is what David is doing. David is using these rational thinking arguments to support his wish to God. David is actually as well showing that he is concerned for God's glory and honour. He says he doesn't want his enemies to see him as good as dead because they would believe that they were triumphant then. So what have we seen? In verses 1 to 2, we have this outpouring of raw emotion and raw feelings, really. And then in verses 3 to 4, we have the thinking and the reasoning kicking in. What can we learn from it, that simple fact? Well, we don't need to think that our prayers have to be either or. They can be both full of emotion before God and logical reasoning and returning his promises to him to support our prayers. Dale Ralph Davis says, at the throne of grace, tears fall from your eyes and arguments from your lips. So, we've seen the weariness of faith, the instinct of faith. Thirdly, and finally, before a brief conclusion, the anchor of faith. The anchor of faith. Of faith, verses 5 to 6. But I have trusted in your mercy. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. Now there is nothing that suggests David's circumstances have changed suddenly between these verses. But his perspective has changed. These two verses show us that David's despair and his urgent cry out were not born out of unbelief or a lack of faith, and instead they came from one who trusts in God's enduring love and mercy and kindness. David knows that whilst we fail and we are frail, we are created, hum- we are created uh, humans who fail regularly, David knows that God remains true to his promises and that he never changes and that God can never fail. So what is the anchor here? Well, the anchor is not the I in verse 5, but I have trusted. The anchor that David's holding on to clearly is not the I. It's the your mercy at the end, (coughs) or your unfailing love in other translations. The Hebrew word that's being translated is actually hesed, and I think you're probably meant to put a bit of something on the... I'm not going to try and do that. This Hebrew word hesed, which we can understand as steadfast love, or loving-kindness, or mercy. Now, hesed, to use the proper word then, is nothing short of a miracle. It's the word that God uses to describe what he is, was, and is full of when he was talking to Moses after giving the Ten Commandments. Uh, And that was immediately after, if you remember, the people had deserted him before Moses had even come down with the tablets, The people had deserted God and gone to worship the golden calf. Immediately after that, God talks to Moses and says, I'm still full of hesed for your people, for my people. So when one sees hesed in the light of that spectacular fall, after being delivered from Pharaoh and being shown so much kindness, one would have to say that hesed really has no right to exist in human logic. And yet it does. So David is reassured that God not only loves him, but that God is full of hesed toward him. So God is loyal, dependable, and committed to him. A love that refuses to let go. That's the anchor of David's faith that he comes round to by the end of the psalm. So just by way of a very, very, very brief conclusion, and then we'll come to our time of prayer. There is once again, a parallel between David in this psalm and our Lord Jesus Christ. I'm sure it's not lost on you. Probably don't need to highlight it, but I'm going to. Jesus too had an unrelenting enemy who wouldn't go away. That's Satan. Jesus looked as good as defeated, like David appears here when Jesus was hanging on the cross. He looked as good as defeated. And yet Jesus also knew, the same as David, knows here that his father is good and perfect and jesus then prevailed and rejoiced in the knowledge that he was defeating the devil and that's the confidence that david displays by the end of this psalm we need to remember that god may not immediately turn back on the lights in our darkness when we ask we may be left to endure some darkness in one samuel we read the words year after year in psalm 13 how long How long, how long? We as a church have known, and I'm sure we will know, times where we cry out, How long, O Lord? And when we come to those times, let's be encouraged by Psalm 13 then to keep committing ourselves to him, as David did, and to rely on what we know about our Lord and Saviour, rather than what we may be tempted sometimes to feel. We sang the words... When darkness veils his lovely face, I will rest on his unchanging grace. His oath, his covenant and his blood, will they will support me in the whelming flood. Hopefully that's helpful.